Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther podcast coming to you from the Ruther Library, which is on the campus of Wayne State University, and it is in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and as always, somewhere, Troy Eller English is here. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. How are you? I, I'm pretty good. Uh, the fall's going well. We're about to do Thanksgiving. We survived October. Um, how did you survive? Hmm. That good, huh? Excellent to hear. I'm glad to hear that you had enough spice in your stomach, but not at Starbucks. You didn't go to Starbucks, did you? No. 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 Uh, we grind our own beans here. That's right. We grind our own union beans and we grind pumpkin down so we can have the pumpkin spice in our coffee. <laughs> only, only in October. We stopped doing it in November. In November, we switch over to gravy. Okay. It's a gravy and what? Ginger? Gravy and ginger coffee. Latte. <laughs> Frappuccino. All right, enough of this banter. This is part two of our interview with Robert Cherney, author of the book Harry Bridges, Labor Radical, Labor Legend. In our last episode, we learned all about how Harry was brought up and his influences. And then we took a real deep dive into the Longshoreman Strike of 1934, a game changer for all of those that worked on the docks on the West Coast and set the stage for the federal government to really take a good long look at Harry Bridges as an enemy to the state. So on this episode, we see how much the federal government really had it out for Bridges and how they tried so many times to try to deport him, but never could. Now, what was scary to many about Harry Bridges and loved by many as well was that he firmly believed in the principles of democracy. Even when the country he had known and fell in love with for freedom and, and expression and freedom of speech tried to kick him out for just doing that. He held fast on, the, on these ideas that the union is for the rank and file and should be governed by the members. Everything that the ILWU does is governed by the membership. Democracy is open and fair to everyone. And that's why he saw discrimination as, quote, the weapon of the bosses that only wanted to divide and create fear among the working class. He saw the evils of discrimination at a time that many did not want to. And also, there's one more thing about Bridges before we get onto the show, and that he never was paid more than the highest paid longshoreman worker. His salary was not inflated at all over what the men and women in his union made. Salary was set by convention, and even in convention, the, the members would say, we need to raise your, 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 your salary. And he would say, no, not at all. I will get paid. That's the highest member does. Oh, oh, and one more thing. Bridges wasn't a communist, even though he was painted as one. But he was aligned with the Communist Party. He would talk to them. But basically, all right, this is what the quote is. It's not going to affirm the quote of Bridges, but it sums up his whole relationship with the Communist Party. And that is, quote, Communist Party doesn't tell me what to do. I tell the Communist Party what to do, unquote. So on with part two. And remember, please learn and remember this history. For if we don't know it, we won't respect it. If we don't respect it, we lose it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Robert Cherney telling us more about Harry Bridges. And then, of course, you have to read the book at your independent bookstore. Please order Harry Bridges, Labor Radical, Labor Legend. <laughs> Hey, 
the union, the workers controlled the means of production and had a true democracy within, with on, within the boats, on the docks, on the beach, wherever, that they right. had an exact moment to say, this is our dignity. And so we want someone to talk about it right away. So this made, exactly. this made Harry Bridges a very dangerous man in the eyes of the government. <laughs> I mean, who could imagine that he, he took the idea of what the Roosevelt administration said and took it 100% even further, what the IWW is talking about and the Communist Party talks about. So no wonder he was under the eyes of Hoover. No wonder he was under the eyes of um, Jagger Hoover all the way up to the Kennedys. So that leads to me is like the many people forget that he was brought to trial many times to get him kicked out of the country, right? How many times was that? Well, um, depending on how you count, uh, I think four, <laughs> is, four is is the right number. Right. Uh, but interestingly enough, all this started uh, it, within days of the strike in 1934 uh, starting. With it, it, within days of Bridges coming to public attention as the chair of the strike committee. There was a letter saying Bridges is a communist and should be deported that went to federal authorities. Mm -hmm. uh, now, at the time in 1934 and all the way up until 1941, uh, the Department of Labor included the Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, which was the federal agency that was responsible for, among many other things, deportation. The INS was in the Department of Labor. The Secretary of Labor was Francis Perkins. Francis Perkins was a former social worker who had thought that in the 1920s, the INS was used to get rid of labor leaders by deporting them. So when these kinds of requests began to come in to the INS and to Francis Perkins, she was not very interested in this whole operation. Um, as things developed, various private groups, some centered in the American Legion, some of them centered in the uh, Portland INS office, the Portland Police Department, the Oregon Governor's office. Uh, the Oregon governor appointed a kind of free-rolling, free-roaming special agent to investigate communism and so forth. All of these groups began working to try to get evidence on bridges. And by the late 1930s, they had accumulated uh, evidence, in quotes, evidence. Um, that included a forged Communist Party membership card. And we know it's forged. The FBI knew it was forged when they later looked into it. Uh, a tape recording of Bridges' hotel room in Portland during a union conference there. Testimony by a variety of witnesses uh, many of whom it's clear were perjuring themselves. I mean, we and when I say it's clear, uh, some of them later admitted that they'd been pressured to testify in certain ways. At any rate, by the, the late 1930s, 
this body of evidence had been accumulated, centered in, and the Portland INS office forwarded it to Francis Perkins to say, you know, Bridges should be deported. Perkins sent out one of her top assistants to evaluate this evidence. And he told her it won't hold up. It, it's so it's very flimsy. There's there's really uh, no solid evidence against Bridges as being a communist, because if it could be proven that Bridges was a communist, that was a basis for deportation. That right. was that was in federal law. Um, but uh, Perkins finally, under a lot of pressure, at, at one point, there was an effort to impeach Perkins on the grounds that she was shielding Bridges from deportation. And it's at one point, Bridges told Perkins, go ahead, hold a hearing. I can defend myself. We know that it's all phony evidence. And so Perkins ordered a hearing in 1939 to evaluate this evidence. It was, uh, and she appointed the dean of the Harvard Law School, James Landis, as the hearing officer. And the hearing, um, uh, took uh, the the hearing unfolded very much as both Bridges and Perkins expected it to, as all of this supposed evidence, one after another, the supposed witnesses and so forth, were all revealed as having, you know, either the witnesses had some other um, uh, motivation that called their testimony into question. One of the key witnesses proved uh, was proven to have perjured himself in a previous trial. The, the supposed Communist Party membership card wasn't even introduced into evidence, except mm -hmm. uh, to prove that it existed, but not that that the government was claiming that it was that it was valid. Um, and Landis wrote a very long decision in which he basically said there's no evidence and Bridges doesn't have to be deported. Um, there was a storm that broke over this. Uh, there's the, the Landis collection at the Library of Congress has an enormous number of letters, very angry, threatening letters to Landis personally over the decision. Perkins came under great pressure because of the decision. Um, in Congress, a bill was introduced to deport Harry Bridges by name, hmm. which, of course, would be unconstitutional as a bill of attainder. But it passed the House of Representatives by an enormous margin, 90 plus percent of the vote. Um, that bill was going to the Senate. Roosevelt conferred with his attorney general, Robert Jackson, and said, what are you going to do about this? I don't want this bill to come to my desk because it's now 1940. He's running for re-election. If he vetoes the bill, he's in trouble. If he signs the bill, he's in trouble. He didn't want the bill to come to his desk. He said to Jackson, kill it in the Senate. Jackson went to the Senate talked to the key senators, and essentially they made a deal. The agreement in the Senate was 
that there would be a new trial, there'd be a new investigation, and that this time the FBI, the professionals, would conduct the investigation. And so that started, oh, and one other piece, the INS would be moved from the Labor Department to the Justice Department. <laughs> so both the investigation by the FBI and the and whatever hearing would be conducted by the INS would both come under the Attorney General. So J. Edgar Hoover at this point had established himself as this dynamic crime fighter in the 19 late 1920s, 1930s, personally taking charge of big cases and so forth. So he flew out to San Francisco, had a big press conference, said, we're going to get the goods on this guy. And then he turned it all over to his assistant, a man named uh, E.J. Connolly. Uh, and Connolly did this amazing investigation. Every single FBI field office was told to find anything they could on either Harry Bridges or the Communist Party. How legal was the Communist Party? Um, and, and it produced an enormous file within a few months. Um, they, found, they talked to witnesses. They talked to everyone who'd been in the 1939 hearing as a witness. They evaluated the evidence. They con the FBI concluded that the membership card was phony and figured out who had produced it and, and when and all of that. Um, they found new witnesses. They produced elaborate evidence that the Communist Party was illegal because it, uh, it, it uh, was committed to overthrowing the government. Mm -hmm. And in 1941, there was a new INS hearing in which Connolly from the FBI sat right there at the table with the uh, new INS uh, hearing uh, prosecutors. There was a new hearing officer appointed, uh, a retired Republican judge from New York State. Uh, and, and the hearing, just like the first one, was very dramatic, dominated the press for days on end. And in the end, uh, it was against Bridges, which set up a whole series of appeals. Um, there was first an appeal uh, to, a, to a board, then an appeal to the attorney general, uh, and finally uh, an appeal through the courts, which made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. But all this lasted from 1941 to 1945 this whole process of appeals. It was clear at some point that President Roosevelt himself wanted to keep it in the courts rather than intervening. Again, mm -hmm. Roosevelt didn't want to be in a position of either favoring or not favoring Bridges. And, Bridge, and it's clear that Roosevelt liked to be in the position of saying, it's out of my hands. You know, it's in the courts. I can't I can't get involved in this. Um, in 1945, the Supreme Court finally heard the appeal and, um, and came down on Bridges' side. 
uh, it was a very narrow decision based upon some of the wording of the statute that was involved and, and how the wording of the statute had been applied. Uh, Justice Frank Murphy gave a much broader dissent. I mean, he 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 accepted the, the majority opinion, but he went far beyond the majority opinion and argued essentially that the law involved the Smith Act was itself unconstitutional. But that was just one justice saying that. The, the majority of the court in, uh, instead just dismissed the, the, uh, the original finding because of some intricacies of the law. So their matter stood in 1945. Bridges became a citizen. Uh, everything seemed fine uh, mm -hmm. for a while. <laughs> uh, in 1948, Bridges, uh, well, let's back up a minute. In 1937, the West Coast Longshore District left the ILA and joined the CIO as the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union and Bridges became the founding president. So they were now in the CIO, uh, and the CIO, at least for a time in the 30s, was much more tolerant of possible communist influence than it became later, uh, because the charges of Bridges obviously continued all through the 30s and into the 40s. And there were Communist Party members who held union office in the ILWU. Um, in 1948, however, it had become impossible for CIO unions to be on the left. There had been a whole series of political uh, conflicts within the CIO over things like the Marshall Plan over the presidential candidacy of Henry Wallace. And Bridges Union had been on the losing side of those conflicts within the CIO. And by 1948 and 49, the CIO had set out on a course to purge supposed communist-influenced unions from the CIO. And one of those that was purged was the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union. Um, this, in a sense, removed any kind of CIO protection from bridges. Now, uh, almost at the same time that he was fired as the CIO regional director, he was also being uh, under a new investigation by the INS. The INS opened its new investigation. It was really an INS investigation. The FBI wasn't very much involved with it here this time around. It was really the INS that was running this investigation. And they uh, found witnesses. The attorney general's office was very much on board with this. The attorney general himself 
help to persuade some of these witnesses that they should that that they should testify. Uh, and so Bridges was brought to another hearing, another INS, uh, but it wasn't a, a strict INS hearing this time. The first two had started with INS hearings. This one started with a, an a, a assistant attorney general charging Bridges uh, essentially uh, with perjury uh, in his citizenship uh, statements that when he became a citizen, uh, he supposedly perjured himself by saying that he was not a member of the Communist Party. So this was the way the case was presented. It was a perjury case, but the statute of limitations had run out on perjury cases. So the attorney general had to find some other basis for charging Bridges. And instead of directly charging perjury, they charged that he and his two witnesses had engaged in a criminal conspiracy to deprive the government of his citizenship illegally through perjury. <laughs> because there was a wartime law that, uh, that allowed the statute of limitations to be waived if it involved uh, somehow defrauding the government. So they were charging that Harry Bridges had defrauded the government of his citizenship uh, through perjury. Mm -hmm. and, but, but the whole trial focused on was he or was he not a communist? And they brought in witnesses and, and there was a very tense courtroom. Uh, Bridges uh, had found some new lawyers because uh, he had been relying on lawyers very close to the Communist Party if they weren't party members. And, uh, and his chief attorney had defended the Smith Act defendants in the New York Smith Act trial uh, and was in prison for contempt of court. So Bridges found a new lawyer. He, he chose the most prominent criminal defense lawyer in San Francisco, Vincent Hallinan. And Hallinan brought in uh, another uh, lawyer to uh, assist him in the trial. Hallinan was not only the best known criminal defense lawyer in the city, but was also the most successful. Uh, he wasn't notably very political at the time, but he later said that the Bridges trial uh, moved him to the left, that he had <laughs> never experienced the kind of treatment that he had received in that trial. And um, in the end of, by the end of that trial, he was, uh, he was sent to federal prison for contempt of court for his behavior during the Bridges trial. <laughs> at any rate, at that trial, Bridges was found guilty of violating that federal statute uh, and guilty of defrauding the government of his citizenship. And once again, it was appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court once again found in Bridges' favor on a, a very narrow definition of, of the, the law itself under which he had been charged. Uh, so this was the third effort to deport him. 
and uh, one more remained. The federal attorney general's office, the attorney general had office had filed two cases back in in the beginning. There was the criminal conspiracy case. There was also a civil case to uh, strip him of his citizenship. Same essential arguments, but the difference being they relied on a criminal conspiracy versus a civil conspiracy. So this case um, came to federal court in San Francisco in the mid-1950s. Judge Goodman heard it all. Oh, Bridges had brought in another new lawyer this time. He brought in Telford Taylor, uh, thinking, you know, if the federal government keeps throwing my lawyers in jail, I'm going to find someone they can't do that to. So he was able to recruit Telford Taylor as his lawyer. Telford Taylor had been the leader. Of, he, he had been a brigadier general in the U.S. Army during World War II and, and had been the uh, chief prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials. He was a leading figure in the Americans for Democratic Action, a liberal anti-communist organization. He seemed immune to the kind of treatment that had been meted out to either Hal and Ann or any of the other lawyers. I interviewed Taylor, and it was yeah. very interesting. Taylor said that throughout that trial, he kept noticing that the judge, Judge Goodman, had had given the prosecution almost anything they asked for, that he had, had really ruled for the prosecution on almost every instance when the prosecution raised an issue. And Taylor said he eventually thought he saw a pattern here, and he was right. Goodman found in Bridges' favor and said, you know, there's just no basis for this. And because he had so consistently found for the prosecution on every one of their objections, they had nothing to appeal on. So it was the end. It was finally <laughs> the end. After four hearings or trials, that was the end of the efforts to deport Bridges. This, the longest trial for one guy I've ever heard of. Four it, different it, trials. Just to try to scoop out. Yeah. It was amazing. And, you know, the thing that that kept what what came out of of all of this was that bridges became a martyr bridges defense sought to mobilize public opinion on his behalf by pointing out the way in which the federal government had time and again uh charged him without having any kind of of solid evidence uh to back up their charges. Mm -hmm. And he really became a martyr, not just in the eyes of his own members, but in the eyes of the public more generally. Right. You know, once it, at some point in the in the late 1990s, I was talking to my neighbor here about the research I was doing on Harry Bridges. And she was a woman at that point about 90 years old. Uh, and and when I said Harry Bridges, she said, "Oh yes, that poor man. The government just wouldn't wouldn't leave him alone." And you know, her politics were not liberal at all. But she understood that 
bridges had been badly treated. Right, right. And I was about to say, also, I agree with that because also it reflected on his membership. The conservative guys admired him and kept saying, yes, do what you keep doing because we admire you. And so the same thing with the general public. That's that, exactly that, right. Conservatives exactly. would look at him and say, you've been beat up, but you're still articulate. You give a good argument and we respect you for like what you're doing. And he kept delivering for his members. You know, I mean, he he became a martyr in the eyes of his members, but he also continued to deliver for them time and again. When it came time for contracts, you know, he was able to build on that initial arbitration decision and to continue uh, the advantages that it gave his his members, uh, and especially after a big strike in 1948. Uh, he was able to develop a, a working relationship with the employers such that he, that the members got a whole series of, of side benefits um, that would have been remarkable in a casual labor market because it was still essentially a casual labor market. Mm -hmm. They could decide whether or not they wanted to be dispatched on any given day. So right. they still had some of that kind of advantage of a casual labor market. But they got vacations, paid vacations. They got medical care. They got um, preventative care. Uh, they got pensions. They got all of these things that would have just been absolutely unknown in a casual labor market, but which, of course, were becoming typical of most unionized work in the U.S. by the period of, of uh, during and after World War II. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the changes in federal law in the 1930s that that uh, allowed unions to uh, engage in collective bargaining. Had, had led unions to be able to get these sorts of things for their members, medical care and pensions and paid vacations and so forth. And, and by the 1940s, that, those were all being extended to workers in a casual labor market. And that's pretty remarkable, in it's fact. It's very remarkable. When you have someone who comes and reads your book, what are the major themes that you would like the person to take away about Harry Bridges? Well, I think the most important thing to take away is that he was a pretty remarkable leader of a pretty remarkable union. Mm -hmm. Both of those, you know, because the union itself um, is unusual within the American labor movement. It started out on the left, and it has remained on the left of the American labor movement. Uh, it's a union that um, continues to see itself as part of a much larger labor movement and that continues to believe in the solidarity of working people, regardless of race or gender or any other uh, sort of um, factor that would prevent class unity among workers, both within the country and internationally. You know, they, they take an international perspective on who they are and what they do. And, and in some ways, of course, 
that's built into their work because what they do is deal with companies that operate internationally. And they deal with products that are going into international commerce. And so taking an international perspective is something that Bridges did from the beginning and that his successors in, in that leadership have continued to do, to deal with their counterparts around the world so that longshore workers in the U.S., on the U.S. Pacific coast, have good relations with longshore workers in Australia and New Zealand and Japan, because they're essentially dealing with the same employers. And therefore, they need to have that kind of international outreach as a part of being successful for their own members. That's so true. That's so true. And it reminds me of the story of, that Harry Bridges says back, I think it was 38 or 39, when they refused to load scrap metal on a Japanese um, steamer heading right. over to Japan. Because uh, he said, that is going to be ending up being turned into bullets or bombs. They'll be bombed on Australians, Americans, everything. We refused. So that started the whole trend there for um, the international politics of this union. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, it yeah. Was, and Bridges followed through in very personal ways. Uh, he developed a good relationship with the head of, of the Longshore Union in Australia. Uh, they never... They only met each other once, but they had a direct wire link between their offices so that they could keep in very close coordination. And, you know, once Bridges and, and the Pacific Coast District were able to get rid of the shape up, that became a model for the union in Australia to get rid of the equivalent to the shape up that existed there. So, you know, these, these things work back and forth. Once Bridges and the ILWU negotiated their very important M&M agreement uh, in 59 and 60, that became a model for unions uh, in other parts of the world uh, as well. Yeah. Um, our last question for the day is we always like to ask the researcher what collections they used or how they used the Ruther Library. But more importantly, also for this book specifically, what other archives did you use? So you mentioned earlier that you um, you came to the Ruther Library at the beginning of your research. Yes, I, I, I did that very early. Uh, that was one of my very first places. Uh, Phil Mason uh, had encouraged me to apply for some financial support, and uh, I did, and I received it. And I spent several days, uh, especially looking at the CIO files. Uh, that was, um, I think, the most important thing that I looked at uh, that were in your holdings. There may have been a couple of other collections that were of some interest, uh, but but pretty peripheral. It was really the CIO files that were most important for my research there. And I, I really appreciated the support that Phil Mason gave me, uh, both in terms financially as, as well as just personally, in terms of making it all possible. That's um, but, you know, I, I did my archival research all around the world, literally. In the early 90s, 
uh, researchers for the first time began to work in some of the Russian archives. And there was uh, a big splash at one point that John Haynes had found evidence that Harry Bridges had been a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the United States in this archive in Moscow. So I knew that I had to do research in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, um, I was able to get a Fulbright appointment to teach American history at Moscow State University in the spring semester of 1996, uh, which was a time with a lot of opening and, and really a really nice time to be in Moscow. You know, um, Yeltsin was president, Putin was still somewhere in St. Petersburg, uh, and it looked like maybe Russia was going to become a, a, something like a democracy. <laughs> right, right. Um, and it was really a pleasure to, to teach in Moscow at the time. But my teaching load was one of the lightest teaching loads I've ever had in my life. You know, I taught a lecture on Wednesday afternoon and I did a tutorial on Friday morning and the rest of the time was my time. And I spent a lot of that time at what is now uh, the Russian State Archive for Social and Political History. Uh, and to, to try to find every single reference to Harry Bridges that I could find there. And what I came away with was, well, to begin with, yes, there is a record there that Harry Bridges, under the name Rossi, was elected to the Central Committee of the U.S. Party in 1936. Um, I, I, do, I can't dispute that piece of evidence. Um, but in going through the really detailed files that exist there of the California Communist Party, the Washington, Oregon Communist Party, the, the, the minutes of the political bureau, which is like the executive committee of the US party in the 1930s, going through all of that. What's clear to me is that Bridges was never given orders uh, at any point. Okay. Uh, he was given advice. He was sent requests, but he was never given directives. And to me, this suggests that throughout the 30s, which is what these documents cover, they essentially cover from early, from the mid 20s up until the very late 30s, is that Bridges had a a relationship with the party that um, fits what Joseph Starobin, who was himself uh, a high-ranking official within the Communist Party of the United States before he left and became a political science professor, uh, Joseph Starobin described Bridges specifically as being an influential, meaning he wasn't a party member. Strobin said that. He wasn't ever a party member. But he was someone that party leaders could talk to. 
and and suggest things to, but also someone that party leaders listen to, that they might ask him for advice. They might suggest things to him, but mm -hmm. it's clear that he was never given directives. And if being a Communist Party member means you are under party discipline and do what the party tells you to do, by that definition, I, I found no evidence that he was a party member, <laughs> even <laughs> though he was clearly elected to the Central Committee. <laughs> what I, I mean, my whole understanding of what it meant to be a Communist Party member really became uh, sort of blown up <laughs> by doing all this research because it became clear that uh, that one could have a relationship to the party that didn't involve in any way being under the party's control commission, being right. subject to party orders. We could he could. He could talk to the party leadership. They could talk to him, but no, no uh, coercion involved. <laughs> Excellent. See the power of the archives. You find it all out many years later. Right, and and so in in so the Russian archives were important in that regard. Yeah. I spent uh, about uh, six weeks in Australia. The um, University of Melbourne History Department um, invited me there, and I spent uh, much of June and July, the middle of winter, <laughs> in Melbourne. <laughs> um, and I was able to do a lot of important archival research there, which really gave me important understandings about Bridges' early life and his uh, and the way in which. His own accounts of his early life were sometimes a little bit fanciful, mm -hmm. um, but that was also a very important uh, part of my research. And then, and then, of course, all over the country, yeah, all yeah. over the U.S., presidential libraries, university libraries, union libraries. You know, the ILWU has an enormous library um, and archive. In, in his trial in 1949, at one point, the prosecution claimed that he had been in New York in 1936 and had been elected to the Central Committee. The prosecution in 1949 was claiming that. And Bridges was able to demonstrate, based on the material in the union's archives, that he had not been in New York. He could account for where he had been every day that the prosecution claimed he had been in New York. Nice. Now, Bridges once said something like, you know, we, we kept those records and they saved me at times. <laughs> and I, directly relating to this uh, instance. But not only did they save him, they clearly demonstrated that the prosecution witnesses were perjurers. And were never prosecuted for perjury. Vincent Hallinan, you know, laid out the evidence. He had led the prosecution witnesses into making these claims about a specific day and a specific time when they saw Bridges. And he could prove that Bridges had never been there and demanded that they be prosecuted for perjury. And of course, they never were. 
FBI reports on this were quite interesting. I bet. Because, you know, the FBI wasn't as centrally involved in 1949 as they had been earlier. In fact, the FBI sort of stood back and watched this trial in 1949. And there are comments running through Bridges' file about, you know, how the INS was making mistakes and so forth and so on. And after these witnesses made these claims, there's evidence in the FBI file that the FBI, uh, you know, brought this guy in and said, you never told us this. Now you're telling this in the trial. What's going on here? And the guy said, oh, well, I, you know, I may have, uh, you know, they kind of pushed me to say things. So, I mean, the FBI knew that this guy had perjured himself. Right. Of course, they didn't bring charges. The FBI never brings charges. The FBI only accumulates evidence. But in Bridges' FBI file, it's so interesting to see the FBI being critical of people from the attorney general's office at times, or being especially critical of the INS. They just thought the INS was, was really a shoddy outfit when it came to producing evidence, and that they, the FBI, were the real professionals. So Bridges' FBI file is very important. I've, I've given it to the labor archives at San Francisco State. I gave the labor archives at San Francisco State all my research files, and they've just gotten them organized, so they're going to be available to researchers in the future. That's excellent. That is so excellent. Bob, I do appreciate taking this time with us. Um, there's so much more in the book that everybody needs to read, and I hope they pick up your book and read it. Thanks again for being on Tales of the Ruther. It's been very nice talking with you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. All right. Intro for episode two. Episode two. Here we come. Hello and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to... Should I do t- Ruther or Tales from the Ruther or Tales from the Ruther Library? I mean, officially, it's... I don't know what it is officially. Tales <laughs> from the Ruther Library, I think. I'll just go for the short one. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea what our show is called. <laughs> <laughs> We've, we've only been it. doing it for five years. The story of Harry Bridges is that important. Um, we have not done this in so long that I forget what I'm talking about now. I'm going to stop now and start over again. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs>